scripture shapes the lives of millions of people around the world. Yet scriptures, both the Bible and the Quran, only gain meaning when they are interpreted by the human mind. Minding Scripture, a podcast from the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, explores the meeting of reason with the scriptures of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I am Gabriel Said Reynolds, Professor of Islamic Studies and Theology in the World Religions World Church Program at Notre Dame. And joining me are Professor Francesca Murphy. Welcome. Hi. Professor Sri Novik. Hey. And Professor Emeritus from the History Department of Notre Dame, Mark Knoll. Good morning. Good to have you with us. Professor Knoll is the author of God and Race in American Politics, A Short History, published by Princeton University Press in 2008. And before that, The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. He is currently working on a new book related to the Bible in 19th century America, which is connected to our theme for this episode of Mining Scripture. It covers especially the question of the Bible and slavery. And I've got a provisional title from Mark, which is Bible Nation from Tom Paine and Francis Asbury to Francis Grimke and Woodrow Wilson. Today's episode of Mining Scripture will be dedicated to the question of slavery and the Bible. Maybe we'll have some comments about the Quran, but especially about the Bible. And we're also going to connect uh, these questions in regard to the interpretation of the Bible with how they played out in debates over slavery in the 19th century in the United States and maybe the aftermath um, into the 20th century and even to the 21st. I thought we would start, though, in antiquity, not in contemporary America, and sort of turn to you, Svi, um, as a way of providing some background to the question of slavery in the Bible. And perhaps you could help us see that in light of slavery general, slavery generally rather in the antique world. For example, when the Bible discusses slavery in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is it simply uh, reflecting a widespread common practice or is there something distinct in the Bible? Is there something else going on? Uh, sure, yeah. Well, so it's a, it's a complicated question, of course. The Bible is, the Old Testament is a, a work of the ancient Near East, and its law codes in particular are very much in dialogue with ancient Near Eastern law codes, and most famously the, the Code of Hammurabi, the laws of Hammurabi, but others too. Uh, and so the Old Testament does accept uh, slavery as an institution, um, the Eved is a standard figure in biblical narrative and in biblical codes, uh, the Eved, the Amma. Uh, and in that respect, it's a it's it's certainly a, a product of its time and it's not intervening in a in a revolutionary way, arguably, in that are sense. Those three, are those two words for a male slave and a female slave that you gave us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Eved is a male slave, Amma or Shifcha is a female slave. That's right. Um, and uh, so so you do you do have um, right the basic institution uh, accepted. Uh, on the other hand, I think it is fair to say that you have uh, something distinctive. It's important, I think, not to be um, kind of I suppose uh, triumphalist about uh, kind of a biblical ethic or to appreciate the continuity, say, between biblical ethics and ancient Near Eastern ethics more broadly. But there are, uh, I think, certain distinctive things about. Uh, the biblical treatment of slaves. Uh, I mean, of course, there is a, a, a more general sort of ethic. Um, there's a, a universalist ethic kind of rooted in uh, the creation stories and in the notion of 
the image of God in human beings that secures a certain, I suppose one might call humanism. Uh, and then uh, and then one finds in, in certain biblical texts, uh, especially the experience of Israel in slavery in Egypt as a source for uh, ethical treatment of slaves. So, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, so you have the Decalogue. The Decalogue appears twice in the Old Testament, once uh, in the narration of the Sinai event in Exodus, and then a second time when Moses is reviewing it in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, as part of a general, again, what might one uh, what one might call a humanist bent, the the Sabbath legislation is associated specifically with the Exodus, uh, rather than with the creation of the world. The idea of Sabbath rest is linked as an historical matter, or in terms of kind of situating it, not in relation to God's rest at the time of creation, but in relation to the liberation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Uh, and that is that, that becomes a foundation in the second version of the Decalogue uh, to specifically emphasize the rest of the Eved and Amma. Uh, and there's this language of, right, so that your male and female servants may have rest like you. Uh, so I'd, I'd point to the experience of Israel in Egypt, uh, slaves in Egypt, as something that in particular then becomes uh, an occasion for reflecting on uh, one's own slaves, uh, not, uh, not as, a, as a ground for undoing it altogether, uh, but for ameliorating their condition, for an attentiveness to their condition, uh, for in general kind of a theological reflection on the whole relationship between work and rest that then is going to have its impact even for slaves. Well, that's that's a good place to, I think, um, uh, bring Mark and Francesca into the conversation. Um, yeah, Francesca, go, go for it. And then, yeah, and then... I have a question, okay, which is just occurring to me as you speak. Um, my understanding is that ancient Near Eastern slavery isn't considered morally in the sense that a badder person, you know, would be a slave, or there's, it's not even considered um, like uh, religiously like as a caste, like you're the lowest caste and therefore you're a slave. It's just kind of bad luck, like having an enormous visa debt, you know, which has to be repaid, but you can't, um, nobody moralizes about it. It's just a fact that, you know, your, um, your family was in some piece of land that got overrun by us. And so you're all slaves, bad luck. It's just bad luck. It's not understood religiously or ethnically. Like, so no particular class of people are slaves. It's just, um, it's just something that happened to happen to some people. Right, right. Well, it's, it's certainly fair to say that it, does, it doesn't have any, uh, there, there's certainly no racial element to it. There, there is the famous story of Ham, which I'm sure we'll be uh, getting into. Uh, but uh, th there is an ethnic element to it only insofar as, well, just to pick up first on your, on your visa debt analogy, right? Of course, a, a debt or a financial obligation is uh, one of the ways in which uh, someone becomes a slave. That's a kind of within the society, uh, the, 
one, one might become a slave as a result of debt. One might sell oneself uh, into slavery as a result of a debt. Uh, but there is an ethnic element only insofar as there's also a, um, a kind of an external source of slaves from outside of the society through uh, conquest or purchase. And the Bible, the Old Testament, does distinguish between, um, between uh, Israelite debt slaves and slaves that are the result of acquisition or conquest, uh, and there are different rules governing them. Uh, okay. And so, yeah, yeah, and so, so to that, so to that degree, there, but, but, but it's there, there is no sense that uh, it's simply in virtue of being non-Israelite, one is slave-like. There's certainly no, no, there, there's no, uh, and, and there isn't any reflection on uh, kind of uh, a, a servile character. One, do, one does kind of find that in, in the Greek context, but in the Bible, there, there's no real notion of a of a servile character. And on the contrary, on the contrary, the term Eved, that same term servant, is the, is the is the very same term for a servant of God. Leviticus 25, another passage that I imagine we'll get to uh, both in the in the Old Testament itself and in its reception, uh, uh, has God say that the Israelites may not be in permanent servitude to each other because they are servants of God. But so so that that the, the very fact that that terminology, Eved, slave, is used both for a slave in the ordinary socioeconomic sense and in the sense of a, of a, a servant of God, um, uh, and, and in this way that they can be kind of uh, thought of together. One can't be a slave to a person because when this is a slave to God, suggests that there isn't a notion of a servile character. Yes. I mean, I have a Kenyan friend who says, he could never forgive Aristotle for saying in the politics that some people are naturally slaves. Hmm. And that notion isn't in scripture as far as you understand it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Right. So it's odd that it was later in the 19th century used by some people to justify the notion that some people are naturally slaves. Hmm. I don't know if Mark, Mark would like to come in on that. Yeah, exactly. Mark, do you want to comment on this or maybe about the Exodus point as well, if you want to touch on one or both? I will uh, draw attention to the uh, what C and Francesca have said about the ethnic and racial division, because in the 19th century, and there were literally hundreds of um, works, long works, short works, appealing to scripture on different questions of, of slavery in America, only a few um, commentators, anti-slavery commentators, pointed out that all of the slaves in the Bible, is Old Testament, New Testament, Hebrew scriptures, Christian scriptures, all of the slaves in the Bible were white. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, the easy task for those who wanted to defend slavery was to simply point out that Abraham had slaves, the distinction that Zvi mentioned between uh, Israelites in debt who could be enslaved, but then foreigners who could be enslaved and then actually passed that the slavery could be passed on generation to generation. Those passages, the anti-slave people in America said, had never mentioned a racial characteristic. And it was very, very common in pro-slavery biblical reasoning to toggle back and forth between discussions of slaves and blacks. And that was actually one of the weakest points of the pro-slavery Bible arguments in the United States, but also one of the points, given the uh, circumstances of the day, that were uh, uh, latched onto by anti-slave Bible people infrequently, which I think is one of the, uh, tells, tells us that the hermeneutical surround 
the assumptions about how to interpret the Bible were awfully important, even before Mark, people dipped into the uh, text themselves. Was that in part because of the interpretation of Genesis 9 and the associations made with, with Ham and Canaan? Because w- not everybody knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll let Mark do that. I'm sure okay. you, you have the story in uh, Genesis 9 after the flood, where uh, Noah builds a vineyard and is uh, inebriated. And uh, two of the sons uh, try to cover things up, but uh, Ham does not. And when uh, Noah awakes, he said, cursed be Canaan, son of, son of Ham, and he'll, Canaan will be a servant slave of, of, of the brothers. Uh, the, the, the history of the interpretation of this passage is really interesting because uh, by the mid-19th century in the United States, most Bible interpreters who had some awareness, it didn't need to be much awareness, but a little bit of awareness of European biblical scholarship said, this passage deals with uh, discussions of tribal and ethnic identity in the old world and really has nothing to do with life in the new world. There were very strong pro-slavery Bible advocates in the 1850s and right in the days of the Civil War who said, this passage has nothing to do with our American situation. We defend slavery on other passages entirely. However, in the United States, learning was not uh, a, a, a guide to who would be listened to interpreting the Bible. In the United States, interpretations of the Bible were driven in large part by who could, who could obtain and control an audience. So there was actually a, a a very large element of the Bible reading public in the United States who, when they read Genesis 9, cursed be Canaan, you will be a servant of your descendants of your brothers, saw in that passage a, a justification for enslaving Africans. Even though that interpretive under, uh, conclusion, as I understand it, really came out of the 15th and the 16th century and had very little to do with with ancient Bible interpretation. If I can go on to even complicate the the subject further, the the use of Genesis chapter 9 to identify Africans as, in some ways, foreordained to slavery strengthens after the Civil War when so-called scientific racism began to prevail in the United States. In other words, uh, learned people who made distinctions amongst ethnic groups, amongst races, on the basis of anthropological, cranial size, civilization, many of whom scorned the scriptures and said, Africans are of a different species than Caucasians, usually there was a, 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 a scale, always Caucasians at the top, always blacks at the bottom, in between different groups. These people uh, said, we don't need the Bible, but, but the uh, science of the day shows that blacks are inferior, blacks are in fact not even species of humanity in the same way the whites are. In response, Christian people latched on to Genesis 9, and the sense that Genesis 9 applied to Africans actually became became stronger because it was a way to affirm, in a Christian sense, uh, uh, the the unity of all humankind. So 
the scientific racists were polygenesis people. They believed that there were multiple species. The Christian people were monogenesis. They said, no, it's only one species. And Genesis 9 shows that Africans are part of the human species, but a lower part of the human species. So hmm. the history of interpretation of Genesis 9 is very complicated. And I, I fear that you can find on the Internet today um, uh, ar arguments based on Genesis 9 to, to say that there is a, uh, a, a designation of Africans to be the servants of those of other races. So the history of interpretation is very complex, uh, and it really actually has nothing to do with what C, C was talking about, the, the accepted assumptions about slavery in the ancient Near East. But Mark, I could I, could I, I just want yeah, yeah, a, a kind of question. I don't understand, like, why did they think that maybe it, I'm just stupid, but why did they think um, that the sons of Ham were Africans? This tradition, as I understand it, it develops in the uh, 15th century with uh, in, interpretations that were actually uh, drawn out of thin air but used as a kind of justification for the European exploration and exploitation of the African West Coast as Europe in the age of discovery was encountering peoples that they had not, I mean, they had known about, but, well, but, but had not uh, had, yeah. had contact with. Yeah, the, the application to to West Africa, I'm sure, is, is later, though Though you do have already in the, I mean, in the, in, in the biblical text itself, um, Egypt. Is a is a descendant. Right. Of, you already have an associate and Kush. Yes, oh, you already, I have, see. You already okay. have an association with Africa, with East Africa, North East Africa. But I wanted to follow up, Mark, also with a, with a question. I mean, so so I can see. So so those who are kind of defending slavery with reference to Genesis nine, I wonder. So I, I can imagine, kind of in the context of polemic between pro-slavery and anti-slavery camps, Genesis nine. Uh, figures prominently. But then within the pro-slavery camp, I mean, those that are kind of starting, coming from a starting point that slavery is a good and biblically sanctioned, sanctioned institution, is there also, um, I mean, and away from the heat of the polemical debate with the anti-slavery camp, is there a, a kind of a reasoned discourse about, all right, well, if this institution is biblically sanctioned, what about, what should we do about the biblical laws that uh, that are that that in that insist on a certain protection of slaves. So right. slaves, for example, going according to Exodus, for example, a slave should goes free if it's uh, if it's blinded, or, right. or if it's too, or if it's or if the master uh, breaks the slave's tooth. Or Deuteronomy, another of these humanist laws in Deuteronomy, uh, proscribes prohibits the return of a runaway slave. So do they? Oh, and again, as I mentioned, Deuteronomy insisting that slaves should rest on the Sabbath. Do they bring to bear? those elements that moderate the harshness of slavery? Yeah, I'm curious. Yeah, yeah, it's a tr terrific question because it has to do uh, with the combination of how to interpret text and then how to uh, convince auditors that you're interpreting text the right way. We think in stereotypical terms that the people who really had trouble in the South were those who uh, stood up against slavery, which is true. But almost as uh, difficult were the, was the course of those who believed in the biblical defense of slavery, but called for what they uh, would, would sometimes speak of as Abrahamic slavery. 
In other words, slavery that respected the humanity of the slaves, and in particular, uh, with attention to uh, family preservation, literacy, and training in, in the faith. Uh, uh, one of the, the leading most respected pro-slavery Bible people person was a Presbyterian theologian named James Henley Thornwell, who in 1850 preached a sermon before the South Carolina legislature in which he, he uh, harshly condemned them for not maintaining Abrahamic standards. And, and he, he was respected enough that he could get away with. But, but this, this was a growing sentiment, and it was a sentiment that uh, never convinced all of the white uh, slaveholding South, but did convince uh, quite a, a few. And then as the Civil War came on, there were some white defenders of slavery and the South who said, we are losing this war because God is chastising us for not maintaining Abrahamic standards of humaneness for our slaves. So yes, very much. There was an internal debate that gets lost sight of because of the clash between the North and the South and the, the military violence, but an internal debate on, on not just uh, how to defend the Bible grossly with respect to slavery, but minutely, granularly, how mm. masters are to treat their, their, their slaves. I mean, that's fascinating on a couple of counts. Oh, sorry, Gabriel, did you want to jump in, please? Well, I wanted to clarify one point, and then you can take away from there. Just, I, I want to make sure, because I don't know if all our listeners w- would would know, that you mentioned the connection with with Africa is has some grounding in the Bible, because Egypt, you mentioned Egypt, and I just want to make it clear, I think Egypt is named as one of the sons of Ham, yeah. explicitly, but of course, also Canaan is, which would associate it with the Near East. So it's not as though his descendants were exclusively associated with Africa. Right. Um, no, this is this is definitely not a racial category in the modern sense by any means. Right. 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 <laughs> anyway, so sorry, I just wanted to make sure that was clear. But go, yeah. continue. Oh, oh, yeah. So my, my follow up. Well, first of all, I just thought it's fascinating the the uh, right the category Abrahamic. Of course, Abrahamic is a is a is a big is an important uh, category for modern interreligious discourse. Abrahamic yes. religions, and so it's interesting to see it coming up in that context. Also, the very terminology, I guess, suggests to me that they are thinking of the of the of this. Say, I, I suppose one could call it um, a moderated or or uh, regulated form of slavery, humanist form of slavery in Old Testament terms. Uh, and is that fair to say then that that when they're kind of thinking about uh, well, when this debate is happening, um, the, the biblical texts that are being invoked for um, moderation or uh, treat, uh, ethical treatment of slaves is rooted in the Old Testament or is the New Testament being invoked also? Yes, that is a, a really interesting question because the defense of slavery by the Bible does migrate from primarily reference to Old Testament text to New Testament text. The, the, the silence of Jesus on, on slavery, the, the Pauline text about slaves honoring their masters in the Lord, become re- receive greater emphasis that, than even the, the Old Testament text. Um, the, the the question of how how to uh, interpret the New Testament. Uh, really works differently than how to interpret the Old Testament with, with, with books like, of course, Philemon, where Paul returns a slave, but not a slave, a brother to, to, to a slave owner. Uh, but, because but he's kind of, of leaning on him to send him back. 
He's kind right. of, there's some right. kind of like moral issue right. going on there. I'm not telling you to send him back, but I am. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the anti-slave people uh, underscored that ambiguity time after time after time. The pro-slavery people set aside the ambiguity and said, look, the Apostle Paul accepted slavery. You too should accept slavery. The ethnic development, the, eth the ethnic matter is less clear in, 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 in the New Testament. They have the same, the same uh, pan-ethnic possibility for, for enslavement in the New Testament as in, in the Old. But the Old Testament keep, keeps going as a, uh, a source of constant uh, argument and debate uh, as the, the, the main lear learned discourse moves from scripture to science because the scientists are, are, are really concerned about ancient Near Eastern ethnic groups and how their survival might be tracked into the modern time. Uh, it is, it's, it's uh, really interesting to me that, that when American Jews enter the debate, and that's slight because there's not many Jews in, in, the, in the United States until the 1840s and 50s and even, even later. But the very first uh, rabbi who speaks publicly to a, to a mixed audience about this issue is Rabbi Raphael from New York City, who is invited along with um, Protestant ministers to address the question of the, of the impending civil war, December 1860, January 1861. And he offers a, a, a learned, but a, a, quite a, a stiff defense of the possibility of slavery of Africans in the modern world based upon an entirely based entirely upon his understanding of the Hebrew scriptures. So he's, he's others in this collection that is published in 1860, uh, February of 1862 to try to keep the nation together. Others are dealing with the New Testament at length, but the, the, the rabbi is uh, sticking to uh, his understanding of the Hebrew scriptures and his understanding, there just is no doubt. If you say you believe in a written revelation, you must believe in the continuation of slavery in the United States in 1860. But then, oh, if boy, I'm, I was if I, hoping the rabbis would be better well, than the Christians. Well, but I think you're right. Well, I think you probably have the same ambivalence there. Because if I if I remember correctly, uh, right, there was another kind of very prominent rabbi, kind of associated with Reform Judaism, David Einhorn. Is that right? Who uh, uh, kind of preached uh, kind of boldly and uh, encountering a lot of resistance uh, in favor of abolition. Is that right? Right, yes, and, and, and Rabbi was criticized within Jewish communities for, for making this kind of debate, but he was the, the, uh, the rabbi of, of the most prestigious New York City uh, congregation and was thought to speak for uh, the consensus of the Jewish community, even though on all of these issues in every segment of American religious life, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, agnostic. There are very sharp differences all the way along. What did Catholics I, say? The Catholic story is, is immensely interesting in, in large part because of the, um, uh, whether it's an encyclical or papal bull, I, I'm forgetting, but issued by Pope Gregory XVI in 1839 in Supremo Apostolus a really harsh condemnation of the slave trade. It was, it was so harsh that uh, 
Unitarian leaders in New England who would have nothing to positive say about Catholics actually read out the papal document in in uh, a, a public meeting soon after it was it was uh, released. Now, in Supremo uh, does not reason by proof texting, which is the which is the standard Protestant way of handling things in in the United States. But there is a, a reference in In Supremo to the law of Christ. There is a reference to in, in, in Supremo to treating Negroes as brothers, especially those Negroes, especially those slaves who have become Christian, must be regarded as brothers and therefore given all the rights, rights and privileges. So, Mark, Hold on. Could I'm I just ask a question there? I, I think I? we're really. Can, is it okay if we take a break and then we start with your question, Francesca? Sure. We're, we're about about halfway through, and there's a sure. lot more sure. a lot more to be said, and this is a juicy topic. Uh, okay. Great right. Sure. So, um, as we break, just a reminder to our listeners to uh, to review and rate the mining scripture, and we'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Minding Scripture. We're speaking with, well, with our group, but we're joined in our group in this episode with uh, by Professor Mark Knoll, Professor Emeritus of the History Department at the University of Notre Dame. And Mark, we were just speaking about Catholic reactions to the slavery debate. Um, and Francesca, I think you, you had a question um, to get in. Yes, because um, you mentioned Gregory the Sixteenth, right. who famously uh, condemned separation of church and state um, right. In 1833, also condemns the slave trade uh, later in the same decade, and I, I was interested in asking: Was he condemning just the slave trade, or was he condemning actual slavery? Because they are different. In English law, um, the slave trade was condemned first, outlawed first, and then later on, slavery itself. Uniformly, American Catholics read the Pope's. Uh, authoritative statement as condemning the slave trade, but not slavery. There were, there were uh, intense debates by Southern Catholic bishops defending slavery against American Protestants who, who quoted the Pope, which they didn't do too often, <laughs> quoted the Pope uh, as reading the uh, in supremo as if it was against uh, uh, slavery as a whole. The American situation explains a great deal of this. Uh, those uh, Americans who are most ardent against slavery, including people who are in some ways quite expert with the scriptures, were also the Americans who are most ardently anti-Catholic. So mm -hmm. the, the Catholic press right into the 1870s and 80s linked anti-slavery agitation with anti-Catholic uh, agitation as well. There is there's no American Catholic who comes out four square against slavery until the middle of the Civil War when the Bishop of, of Cincinnati, John Purcell, and Orestes Bronson, right, buried at Notre Dame. Am I correct in thinking that? Actually come out four square against slavery. But this is very much a minority position so long as the Republican Party, which is a Protestant party with a lot of evangelical support and a lot of anti-Catholic animus, so long as the uh, Republican Party is the party standing for uh, attacks on, on slavery. 
But it's interesting though because the, it sounded from your um, summary of uh, Gregory's um, uh, encyclical or document uh, that the grounds that he was using to justify opposition to the slave trade really would justify opposition to slavery itself. So, exactly. I mean, do, do you take those? That, that this was essentially a, a political decision to stop short of condemning slavery itself, uh, or how, how do you? How do you? Is there a a a, 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 a gap between the reasoning and the conclusion? I do th- I think that, that uh, Francesca mentioned the earlier encyclical against the uh, separation of church and state. No, I, I do think Gre- Gregory and then later Pius IX were really nervous about saying anything that would support what they would regard as the dangerously liberal ten- tendencies of, of European society. Hmm. And so, and so uh, I, 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 I don't know myself what uh, the Pope was thinking about in, in distinguishing between the slave trade and slavery. But there is a, there is a broadly, uh, it's, it's a kind of Christian humanism. It's, it's a sense of natural law defines every human being of, of worth. It does percolate along with the Catholic uh, nervousness about liberalism. So you get in the, uh, it, during the Civil War years, directive from the Vatican, from the very conservative Pius IX, who tells uh, bishops in the South, when, you, when, when the mass takes place, you must communicate blacks as well as whites. You, you cannot segregate the mass, uh, which, which, is, which is being done all over the, uh, the United States. So there, there is a, a, a complicated Catholic opposition to abuses of slavery, a Catholic um, allowance of, of slavery, and a Catholic judgment on how slavery works all at one time. And of course, it's different in different parts of the world as well. It's really interesting. One of the last things Pius XII did before he died was to order the desegregation of Catholic schools in America, late 50s. Hmm. Well, I think there's, we should follow this thread a little bit further. Uh, I mean, Francesca, we were speaking during the break about the question of authority, ambiguity in the Bible. I don't know. Is this a good time to turn to to that topic? Yes, Um, I think we could raise it. Uh, This is the way, um, I I mean, the the passage which, well, these are a couple of passages that jump out at me. You've got Galatians 3, 28. This is Paul. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, nobody before the 19th century understood this to mean anything like um, there's no difference between men and women in out, you know. And so I guess no one read it to mean there's no difference between a slave and a free person. Yes, um, I mean, this, this passage was used along with the uh, golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right, right from the start of Bible attacks on slavery, which... which begin to trickle in in the early 1700s and and begin uh, to be much stronger in the 1760s and and, uh, 1770s. The the anti-slave people are always, all the time, using these passages to say, the Apostle Paul, Jesus and his commands, want you to treat others as you would like to be treated. The pro-slavery defense is, yes, of course, if I was a slave, I would like you to treat me 
justly. I would like you not to to, to sell my spouse it, it, down the river. Uh, but certainly these passages cannot mean that the, the serf would become the, the lord, the citizen would become the mayor, the private would become the general. These are talking about spiritual compatibility, spiritual equality. And of course, the Christian people would say the slave is as spiritually valuable as the master. But in God's order of creation, God himself is the one who has positioned the slave under the control of the master, positioned the wife under the, the headship of, of the husband, uh, positioned the citizen under the headship of, of the emperor. So there's a natural law defense of slavery combating a natural law opposition to slavery based upon the uh, re respect for humankind. So, so it wasn't just a question of biblical fundamentalists against people reasoning more from a, um, I don't know if modernist is, a, is an anachronistic term, but it's from a natural law perspective. It right. wasn't just that. There were natural law arguments and biblical arguments. Exactly. Right, right. Uh, yes, so for Aristotle, the fact that some people yeah. are naturally right. slaves is natural right. law. Right. And, yeah. and, and, and learned Southerners knew their Aristotle. Maybe yes. not as well as they knew the scriptures, but they knew, yes. they knew Aristotle. Yes. And so the problem we're looking at then is that the Bible is ambivalent. It's not, it doesn't have a thoroughgoing yes to slavery as slavery was practiced in, in America um, or in modern Europe, but it doesn't have a thoroughgoing no either. You've got Paul um, who sends back the slave. Onesimus is a Christian, he's been baptized, but he's still a slave. And Paul sends him back to Philemon. But Paul is kind of saying, treat him as a brother, and I view him as a son, and I'd really like you to send him back to me if you could. Right. Um, so it's like yes and no in the same sentence, in the same letter by Paul. And so without an interpreter, how are you going to know what the Bible says about slavery? Uh, in, in, in my understanding of, of American history and development of the Christian traditions in America, um, one of the reasons why uh, the Christian faith takes off in the population after the American Revolution is with the democratization of formal life, the democratization of institutions. In the American Revolution, patriots, and overwhelmingly Christian, reject not only what they call the tyranny of parliament, but Christendom represented by the link between church and state. So in the United States, religious adherence is going to be a result of democratic persuasiveness in the public. So the groups that, that, that expand very dramatically, very rapidly, are the Methodists and the Baptists who, who preach a, a, a simple gospel to ordinary people. So you have the unleashing of a tremendous Bible-rooted evangel that is extremely effective. Uh, the, the rate of church adherence uh, doubles, triples, quadruples the rate of population growth between 1800 and 1860. So you have the situation where the churches are growing rapidly, where Bible-oriented preaching is, is drawing uh, unprecedented numbers into the church, and then you have the question of what does the Bible say about slavery? The same democratic freedoms that were responsible for 
the, the most extraordinary Christianization of the 19th century are the democratic freedoms that make it impossible to have a clear biblical word on slavery. If you are able to convince an audience in America, what you have convinced the audience to believe is the truth. And there's immense re respect for the Bible because of how effective it has been in ordinary people's lives and, and giving them uh, stability in very unstable times. But it is a situation where for ethical application of scripture, it's chaotic. Yeah, it's interesting. But so you take it not as a, I mean, in addition to the, I guess, intrinsic ambiguities of any text and uh, a multi-authored uh, kind of collection of texts like the Bible even more so, you're saying there are also specific historical conditions that, that uh, kind of make a kind of the development of a consensus especially difficult, the democratization of the uh, of, of interpretations there? Sorry. Right, exactly. In the same way that we realize today that uh, uh, Bible scholars uh, worry about passages having to do with men and women, and I would say a direct response to the, to the culture's concern for the rights of women that grew up after, after the Second World War. So the, the most uh, significant thing I've read and tried to read way too much in some ways until it just becomes counterproductive is by the, the African-American Bible scholar Vincent Wimbush who says, all questions of biblical interpretation are questions of pre-interpretation. The stance from which the scriptures are approached is as important as anything is that is done in interpreting individual texts once that stance is in place. In other words, the hermeneutical frame, the hermeneutical assumptions are, are uh, determinative for what one is able to see in the scriptures. I, I think you can push that insight too far, but it's absolutely crucial for understanding how, how the scriptural texts are interpreted in, in, in any context. But, but could I ask though, I mean, is the, is the, are, is the debate between pro and anti-slavery camps really, uh, can, can it really be distinguished by different hermeneutical frames? Or, I mean, because when I think of hermeneutical frames, I think about, you know, principled interpretive assumptions about how, how do we go about interpreting texts, whereas, that, whereas here it seems like the main debate is those who are interested in perpetuating slavery and those who are not. Uh, but I mean, this there guy, are, uh, the, the Presbyterian minister, who, who in, in the Southern Congress defended Abrahamic slavery and held them to that right. standard. Now, this Presbyterian minister, right. it's not necessarily that he's a slaveholder and so he wants to carry on. I mean, right. he actually believes it, and he's got his Aristotle and his Bible, and he's reading them together like faith and reason. And um, I mean, you could say, um, oh, well, he just wanted to carry on holding slaves, so he invented this Abrahamic thing. But he's actually holding them to that standard. Right. There you seem to have a more subtle one. Please, Mark, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm reluctant to intrude on the people who do this for a living, but, but the, the idea of cultural hermeneutics makes sense for me. So it was, it's not a, a question of uh, what are the procedures in bringing together, say, text, but it, it's the... It's the, it's the framework uh, mm -hmm. that directs vision when looking at text that, that is, 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 maybe hermeneutics is not the best way of talking about that, but it, it certainly is, determined. and Francisca is entirely right. One of the really crucial developments in historical uh, understanding after, after uh, the, the Second World War was the, the demonstration by very competent historians 
that the defense of slavery by Bible-believing people was in many cases a principled defense rather than a defense completely from interest. Now, you and I could say, well, they thought it was principled, but it really was interest. But, yes. but uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that has a little, there's a little bit of hubris in that kind of uh, decision. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if it's, this is a good good time, but uh, we have about five or ten minutes left, and I, I, I wanted to take us back to the Bible and uh, to some of the New Testament texts, some of which have been mentioned already. But can, can we turn to um, the Gospels? Uh, Mark, you alluded to the Golden Rule as a principle which informed or uh, around which um, pro- and anti-slavery uh, advocates that that whole debate sort of pivoted, um, you, but you also alluded to earlier the question of Jesus's silence on slavery. So I wonder if we could explain that. But I mean, Svi or Francesco, if you want to jump in on on the Gospels and and the question, I'd be happy to hear your thoughts. One of the, one of the arguments that was made constantly by pro-slavery people was we see Jesus modifying um, ethical inheritance of the Hebrew Scriptures. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you, he does not, it's not recorded that Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, it's proper to enslave those from outside Israel, but I say unto you. So if, if Jesus himself would, was, uh, if God in Christ was not opposed to slavery, then how can we be opposed to slavery? It's, it's that kind of reasoning. And then, of course, the, the anti-slave people said, well, you, you, you just have to understand that in, in the context of the first century, if Christ, the Apostle Paul, had come out strongly against slavery, they, they, the, the whole movement would have been crushed immediately. The Romans would have simply done so. They were introduced uh, by actually a, a, a Methodist and, and a black uh, anti-slave author in, in the first decade of the 19th century, the notion of circumstantial reasoning. In other words, circumstances have to come into play to understand how the, how the Bible should be interpreted. And of course, that, that was a line of argument that anti-slave people picked up and a line of argument that, that uh, pro-slavery people said, no. What you're trying to do is just align your understanding of Scripture with contemporary values. You're undercutting Scripture. If you attack slavery, you are undertaking the Scriptures. You're un attacking and undermining the Christian faith itself. Hmm. So is this something that appears in Jewish thinking as well about slavery, maybe other more ethical issues, that there's this uh, circumstantial uh, reasoning that should uh, be the starting point for a more I don't know, progressive interpretation of scripture? Uh, well, sure. I mean, you do have emerging, I mean, in, in, the, in the modern period, certainly the, the, the uh, movements of reform, uh, reform of ritual practice uh, kind of often advert to uh, historical circumstances or um, uh, kind of uh, invoke circumstances, that's right, as, as, as a way of justifying change. And, and then there is the traditionalist resistance to it. And so, yeah, one does find... Uh, one does find the same dynamic. I don't know if one finds that specifically around uh, uh, around reasoning around slavery, but one can certainly uh, one can certainly kind of appreciate the. I mean, of course, the, the, that same sort of debate plays out uh, around all sorts of issues uh, to the to the present day. I suppose in the current in the in the uh, second half of the twentieth century to today, around issues of sexuality, homosexuality, etc. And the invocation of circumstances, and here you do it seems right genuinely to be a question of uh, 
um, where there is a hermeneutical question at stake here, whether whether the hermeneutics is motivating it or the circumstances or some combination, uh, but it's a, it's a very kind of crucial and difficult hermeneutical question. I so it seems to me that um, going from what Zvi said, that from the Torah, you would get a kind of a humanistic slavery. And the ultimate argument against it in the 19th century is that in our world today, we cannot get a humanistic slavery. It's just not happening. And it reminds me of the death penalty in the sense that um, for most of Christianity, it's accepted. But since John Paul, uh, the argument has been in the world as we live today, you're not going to get a humanistic death penalty. Uh, It just strikes me as an analogy that is not actually condemned in scripture but there's certain kinds of principles which were saying, well, we're not going to get humanistic slavery in the South in the 1860s. We're not going to get a humanistic death penalty in the 21st century because there isn't enough of the kinds of beliefs that could support such a thing. Hmm. So the, the hope for humanistic slavery is unrealistic. So he's going to be treated like Jim in Huckleberry Finn, you know. A really good book on Catholic uh, the discussion of these is Judge Noonan's, um, and I not, might not get the title, title exactly right, The Church That Can and Cannot Change, The Church That Does or Does Not yes, Change, yes, which yes. Actually is an extended discussion of this, this very topic. What, what yes. does contextual thinking contribute yes. to uh, Catholic statements that uh, uh, both claim not to change and actually change? <laughs> Yes. I, I wanted to get in one more passage from the New Testament, and then maybe we'll have some concluding thoughts. But um, this is from uh, Acts 17. Um, maybe, Mark or Francesca, you can tell me what's, what's going on in this chapter. Um, this is uh, verses 26 to 27. I assume it's an address of Paul, but I... Right. It's, it's, the, yeah. it's the, uh, the Mars Hill discourse, but uh, Paul eventually says... Uh, God has made people, everyone of one blood, and given them uh, bounds. And of course, everyone of one blood was was a prime anti-slavery text. The pro-slavery people fastened on to the last part of the verse that God has established the bounds and limits. But uh, this this was primarily a, a, a an anti, a very strong anti-slavery text and used. Uh, but it, it calls back to the origin. So the verse, at least in the Revised Standard Version, and he made from one every nation of men to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their habitation. That's an allusion to creation from Adam. Right, right, right. And so a, a certain human uh, fraternity, to use a Pope Francis right. phrase, I think that they, this is a passage that underlay the uh, the, the British uh, 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 emancipation that regarded uh, not Africans not as slaves but as brothers or potential brothers. Mm-hmm. Well, one other thought, maybe as we move to a conclusion, that for maybe Svi and Francesco or anyone to jump in, I, I just felt like um, we we didn't fully. Um, maybe plunge to the depths of the, the Exodus story and its relevance to the slavery debate. I mean, it, it seems to me as someone who doesn't know as a specialist the Bible, um, that from, you know, from sort of a distance, it's so prominent in 
the whole, you know, um, salvation history, to use maybe a Christian term, uh, um, in the story of Israel in the Hebrew Bible Old Testament, that it would seem to just loom larger than, uh, you know, both in Jewish and Christian thinking. I mean, it's so central to the identity of Israel that God heard their sufferings. Um, so I don't know. Uh, it, I sort of find it surprising that it didn't just dominate all other biblical texts. Yes, but see, like a few chapters later, God is giving the Israelites precise laws about how to keep their slaves mm-hmm. and how to be good to them. <laughs> so it's, it's um, but all the Negro spirituals are about just that one thing. Yes, so the they knew how to read it. The Exodus passage was, was absolutely central for African-American approach to the scripture. And what happened uh, in the spiritual sometimes, but in, in black preaching, was a fusion of the person of Moses and the person of Jesus. How, do, how does that, so, how does so that the, play out? Jesus as, as liberator, Jesus as um, the, the, the one who re- redemption, Right. Redemption is one thing. You can look at it spiritually, and you can look at it in terms of, of liberation in this world. And it was the division of those things that uh, white commentators of all kinds, pro and anti-slavery, made routinely, which uh, the, the great contribution of black biblical awareness was was to not make that differentiation. Hmm. Well, maybe as a as a final thought, because we're just about at time, um, I don't know if anyone wants to add commentaries on the contemporary situation. Um, obviously, you know, we're um, living through a time not only of the pandemic, but of great debate over race um, and racism in the United States. Um, so would anyone like to, you know, speak to that, speak to the, the interpretation, interpretation of the Bible or maybe other related um, sorts of debates before we conclude. I mean, for me, it would be interesting. I mean, just uh, to, to, uh, to me, anyhow, just impressionistically, it seems that so little of the uh, of the debate um, or discussion uh, kind of occurs uh, in a, within a biblical framework. I mean, we. Uh, I mean, Mark alluded to the vast rise and uh, uh, the the uh, um, kind of the growth of uh, well, of Christianity, biblical literacy uh, between. Uh, uh, or in the first half of the 19th century, and uh, and so we're in different circumstances. So, but but it's interesting to see, be interesting to see more kind of how that uh, how these discussions would play out in a more, uh, say, biblically literate um, uh, nation or in a public discourse that was more rooted in the in in the Bible. I, I bring out of the, the 19th century a, a great respect for the for the uh, really thick. Uh, tradition of African-American engagement with the scriptures, which by, by 1900 is actually fairly sophisticated. It, 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 they're still the spirituals, but there are, there are learned African, inter, African-American interpreters of, of the Bible. What impresses me is that in, in uh, some terms, they look almost fundamentalistic. That is, highly supernatural, keen to preserve the literal meaning of text, and at the same time, highly liberationist. And you just do not have that combination in, in the white world. The, the more conservative uh, Bible interpreters of the white world are re- very reluctant to take social positions. The more liberal white interpreters who underplay the supernaturalism of Scripture are those who tend to be out in front in, in things like civil rights. And that uh, division is completely reversed in African-American, uh, uh, the, the tradition of African-American biblical interpretation. Francesca, any final thoughts or reflections? Um, 
No, not really. I, it's sad that we did so badly. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> Maybe it's good to end on such a difficult topic with a, so, a sobering note like that uh, as a sort of exhortation. Well, thank you, Mark, so much for, for being with us. It's been my privilege. Uh, it a great, great conversation. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. Uh, thanks, V and Francesca. Friends, thank you for joining us. And be sure to be with us for the next episode of Mining Scripture, where divine word and human reason meet.